if you're someone who's interested enough in the title of this podcast to click on it and give it a listen, then I'm going to make some assumptions about you. First of all, I'm going to assume that you have some kind of love of being creative in whatever form that takes. The second assumption I'm going to make is maybe you're not 100% sure about how to make that into a career. Maybe you know you don't really want to make it into a career. And if any of those assumptions are right, then I think this episode's for you. Welcome to Graduate Compass, the podcast for graduates who haven't quite figured out what their next step is going to be. James, you're very welcome to Graduate Compass. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us what you originally went to university for and what you work in now? Okay. Well, I originally was down to go to Glasgow University uh, in 1985 to do an MA in Film and Television Studies. And my current job title now is Self-Invested Pensions Technical Specialist. So a little bit different. (laughs) I was just going to say, just a little bit, just a tad bit. So talk us through what what happened when you initially went to Glasgow and how you found that and where things kind of initially led you, I suppose. Okay. Well, I think um, without dwelling on it too much, I I was a very creative child. And from a very early age, um, I drew comics. I made up my own sort of stories and tried to enact them out, uh, usually for my <laughs> long-suffering grandmother. Um, and uh, I also wrote music for all that. Well, I say wrote music. I didn't physically play an instrument. I used to make songs up in my head from probably three onwards. So I, I very much grew up a very creative person, not sporty at all. Um, my My focus was very much on the arts and Certainly, sort of when I was getting to sort of 13, 14, all I wanted to do was uh, draw for the Beano and Dandy. And uh, that actually led me to think about going to art school after my O levels, as they were then called. And um, there's a fantastic art school in Leeds where I, I've always lived, uh, grew up in Leeds, still live in Leeds now. And uh, so I had my sort of site set on going there immediately after my O-levels. I think I decided by the time I got to after my O-levels that the right thing to do was to stay on for A-levels. But I later discovered if I had gone to Leeds College of Art in 83, I would have been there with Damien Hurst. So I'd probably be, I don't know, formaldehyde sheep now or something like that. Um, But anyway, um, I stayed on to do A-levels and I mean, certainly uh, the the school I was at, there was an expectation that everybody would go to university. And as you can imagine, most of the degrees that people were focused on were either science related, uh, legal, um, you know, the the obvious professional degrees, if I can put it that way. But the one that I set my sights on um, was film and television studies uh, as an MA at the Glasgow uh, Glasgow University. And at that time, there was only Glasgow and I think from memory Strathclyde University offering that degree. No one else offered it in the country. And it wasn't a it wasn't by any means a, a Mickey Mouse degree. The grades that they were demanding from me was an A and two B's as a minimum. Um, thankfully, I got that. And uh, 
dutifully went up in September of 85 um, and four days later came home simply because I, I sort of knew almost from the word go that it just wasn't right for me. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, I'm glad I listened to my gut feeling then because when I, by coming home when I did, it gave somebody else the chance to step into my shoes to do that particular degree. Uh, because I think with only two universities offering it then, there was probably a very long waiting list. So I, I always feel very comfortable that I made the decision when I did. Um, and so I came back home and uh, thought, right, I better get myself a job. And so started looking around um, and eventually actually found a, a role at uh, Scottish Widows, uh, the insurance company, as, a, as an administrator. And these were in the days when you went to the job centre, you looked at the cards on the wall, you took the name or the number down of one that attracted your interest and then went to a desk and started talking to somebody about it and when the lady said and and this is what they were called at the time scottish widows fund and life assurance society i think the first reaction was what <laughs> he just he just sounded so weird in a way but anyway i went for a couple of interviews this was in leeds um got the job and um and i think what i would say is i mean i i know hundreds and hundreds of people in pensions having worked in it all my life and so many people you meet say you know I, I fell into pensions or pensions found me rather than the other way around and I think the thing is you know when you're growing up as a kid you don't sort of think oh I'd love to go into pensions when I get older it's not it's not, it's not like being a spaceman or a policeman or something like that so um when I on my first day when I started work at the office uh they basically said, right, there's a, there's a, where there's an administrator vacancy is in our pensions team. So that's where we'd like you to go. And that's how I got into pensions. I could have been going into life assurance and, and maybe, you know, following more of an insurance based career. Um, but um, that's how I ended up in pensions. Um, and uh, sorry, I'll no, no, I, I was just, just wondering, so like, w was it a kind of an early, you know, I, I, I kind of, you knew you loved it the first time you saw it kind of thing, or was it the case of at the time when you when you first got in there, was it just a thought of, I'm just going to do this for a while? What was going through your head when you were trying to yeah. just get in the door? It's a very good question because um, a lot of my school friends had gone to university and certainly I was... Um, going to their universities to see them and they were coming home of course and sort of regaling me with all these stories of what they were getting up to at their universities and so I think I always had at the back of my mind I would like to go to university but I've got to make sure it's the right university in the right place and doing the right degree <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, yes, that was going on in the back of my mind. I suppose also at that time as well, I was really, I, I, I was keen to work. You know, I, I really wanted to work and, and earn money. Um, and I mean, the salary wasn't massive, but, you know, it was more money than <laughs> I'd ever earned in my life. The nearest to it was a paper round, you know. So uh, it was great to be sort of earning money um, and, and saving it and uh, still still living with my parents at the time, of course, and um, and, and just getting used to the world of work and you know life in an office and things like that and uh, it's it, uh, when I sort of look back to it now it's changed so much I mean literally there was one computer on the whole floor and and even that was sort of 
viewed as this strange object in the corner of the room that you sort of occasionally went over to. And uh, I mean, I was very fortunate to, I've always been fortunate to work with some great characters <laughs> during my working lifetime. And there was, there were some uh, Scottish guys there who'd come down from, from Edinburgh where Scottish Widow's head office was, um, smoke like a chimney and you could smoke in the office in those days as well. Um, and, and for some reason, I think probably because I was the youngest person in the, on the floor, they automatically thought that I knew everything there was to know about computers and sort of trying to get them to even type on it was, was a, an effort. So it's amazing how, how things have advanced so much over my working lifetime and, and obviously changed as well, you know, in terms of smoke free offices now. Um, so, uh, I think as I went through probably about 86, things started to sort of click with a view to university and through my research I, I had done economic and social history as one of my A-levels as well as economics and um, the economic history degree at Leeds University very much appealed to me uh, from a point of view of the content and also from a number of the lecturers who were at the university at the time who who had actually studied their work as part of my A-level and uh, so I applied uh, to join Leeds University in to start in September 87 and I suppose the the fortunate thing for me was because I already had my A-levels and um, I, I got an unconditional offer uh, which was great, you know, and uh, so I worked until probably sort of late summer of, of uh, 87, handed my notice in. Uh, but what was really nice was the manager, who was a great manager there at the time, he he fully understood why I was making that decision. He said, he said to me, I can't understand why you didn't go to university after your A-levels. And I said, well, I sort of did and I didn't, <laughs> you know, uh, but he was fully supportive of my decision. And he said to me, look, if you want to come back and work for us in the summer holidays and, and get some money behind you for the following year, please do so. Uh, and, and that's what I did. So uh, that had two massive advantages. Firstly, it did give me a weekly wage during my summer holidays at university, which was really helpful. And secondly, it kept my um, eye in with pensions because there was a lot of changes going on in the late 80s to pensions. And so, uh, you know, I was fully aware of those at the time. And when you were going through that degree then, were you kind of always aware and keeping that in mind that you did that? That you're getting, you're going to get this degree and go back into pensions, or or were you still kind of open to different possibilities? It, it, it's a very good question, and I think I probably always intended to go back into financial services in its widest form, and uh, and and it is a it is a broad church. So when I came to the milk round, as they used to call it in the, in the final year of my degree, um, I did approach a number of different companies from pension consultancies to insurance companies uh, and, and other things in between um, just to see what grabbed my fancy. And uh, ultimately, I ended up uh, getting a, a job with a company which doesn't exist now in, in its name, but it was a company called Noble Lounds, again in Leeds. And 
it was uh, initially as a pensions administrator. So to answer your question directly, I did go back into pensions, uh, but not with an insurance company. It was with um, a consultancy, uh, really, that covered a number of uh, avenues, you know, within, within the uh, structure of their body. Uh, but my initial role was in pensions administration, uh, almost exclusively for defined benefit pension schemes. And I'm conscious I'm throwing terminology there. Um, so I, if, if I can say they're also, well, certainly then they were known as final salary schemes. Not many of them around these days, certainly in the private sector, but 30 years ago, uh, you know, they were arguably the norm um, within within the workplace anyway. So... Sorry, Sorry James, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I'm just, I just, something stri struck me as, as you were talking because you, you were so, you are so passionate about kind of financial services and pensions and it, it comes across in, you know, very positively. And you obviously were very passionate about kind of the creative industry and kind of, you know, the, mm. the, the drawings and the stories and the songs and stuff. I'm just curious about, like, like I said, a lot of graduates who were listening um, might come from that creative area where they just want to go down that road. Yes. What made you think change between kind of I'm not, I I I know you'll still have that passion for the creative side, but kind of realize actually I'm going to take that passion and put it into something completely different to kind of my hobby passion, if that makes sense as a question. It, it does absolutely, and that's what I did. Um, I I set up uh, a pop group while I was at school, and then set up a, another pop group with somebody I met at Scottish Widows in the late eighties. So uh, that and thankfully I was with people who could actually play instruments and play them incredibly well. And so literally all I had to do was sort of sing the songs to them or they would write the music and I would write the lyrics and sing them. So it was, it was very achievable. I, 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 I say to people, I do play the guitar badly and the keyboard even more badly, but I get just about get away with it. Um, and I do, because I'm left-handed, I actually, when I first picked up a guitar when I was 12, I picked it up upside, I picked a right-hand guitar up upside down. And that's how I learned to play the guitar. So, you know, you, you sort of, people say, oh, he's like, just like Jimi Hendrix. And I say, well, th there the comparison finishes. because <laughs> I, I, I basically can just about strum four chords and, and try and write songs out of those four chords. And that's it, really. Because <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. Cause it, cause it, so basically, you know, you kind of confirmed what I was thinking, that, that that passion for performance and creation, whatever, is obviously still very much there. But you just, instead of it being exclusive, you know, it's going to be my whole life, I'm going to be my work and my, my kind of leisure time. There was, there's a bit of a, this was a picture of kind of two separate paths here. You've kind of got your work life where there's a lot of passion and energy in one direction and your creative kind of free time life, which is in another. Would that be kind of a fair thing to say? It is, yes. And, and I think the two can work alongside perfectly well. And the other thing that I uh, went into in the late 80s was amateur dramatics. And uh, I, I mean, I absolutely love uh, and I've not done a lot more recently, but certainly uh, sort of 85 to 95 I did do a lot of amateur dramatics um and uh, and and that's where I met my wife um my my wife joined our group and it was a very very small group uh, in in Leeds where I lived but uh, you know we were all committed to it we hadn't had any money to spend on sets or anything you know what I mean it was it, it was it was very sort of uh, uh, 
close to the bone, if that's not the wrong phrase, but we didn't have tons of money to splash around. So we, we really had to concentrate and, and only a very small stage to work on. So we were limited in what we did, but we did we did a lot of Akebourne. We did one or two Whitehall farces. And I mean, we, you know, we always had a very committed audience, which was great from the area, you know, that we used to sort of sell out every night of the nights we, we used to put them on. But um, yeah, my wife turned up uh, one evening out of the blue and she'd moved into our area with her parents and um to cut a long story short she uh, she played my mistress in the next play we did and it all sort of went from there <laughs> and we got married four years later <laughs> Very good. Um, so, so, so i was just gonna say so so i had the music side and the amateur dramatic side all going on at the same time as as my, as my work, and and I am and remain uh, an incessant doodler, and I always will do. <laughs> no, no, but I I think that's, that's that's really important because there's there's a lot of people nowadays who go off and they do degrees in media or or music or you know various different creative uh, outlets, and then kind of come to the end of it and realize actually maybe this isn't for me as a, as a, a professional industry. But it's it's just so great to hear someone who's who's you know, forged this fantastic career one side, but also c- continued all the kind of creative outlets on the other side. And that, you know, you don't have to leave a die off. You can just m- maybe doing the amateur stuff is enough for you. Maybe having that creative outlet is enough for you because when, it, when you take that into kind of a professional context, it's so different, isn't it? Because you have to, you know, you have to deliver in a different way and it's, it's, it's maybe not as fun. And, and the, there are things that maybe become clearer as you get older if, or as you kind of become more experienced, I should say. Yes, I think that's it. I think I'm very fortunate that the job I have now, the the, uh, the position I have, does allow me to be very creative, but in a but in a work context. So although I'm not necessarily, you know, I don't have a pop group now, and I'm not doing amateur dramatics at the moment. I, I've joined, rejoined a group with my wife, uh, local to where we live now, but. We were we were all set to do a play this year, and of course, like with so many other things, it's just been kicked into touch for the uh, short term. Um, but it would be nice, you know, at some point in the future to be able to to tread the boards again because it's um, performing in front of a live audience is it's great, and and it really has set me up for my role now because a lot of what I do is is speaking in public, uh, you know, doing seminars, events, webinars, things like that. And doing that, you know, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, it, it really helped me to get used to performing in front of a live audience and feeding off their reactions, which is, is what I really, really enjoy. And, but you're doing it in, within a work context. So it's all timing. And, and again, timing is, is very, a very useful skill to have when you're doing uh, professional seminars and, and events and things like that. Because the, the, the bit I was wondering about is, you know, there's, you're, you're, you you're developing kind of both skills, I suppose, at the same time, you know, your professional skills, but you're also developing this kind of creative side as well. Was there a moment or, or a series of moments where you started realizing, actually, what I'm doing in my free time is is really helping my work side that with, with the presentations, with speaking to people, with kind of making people laugh or, or whatever it was? Was there a moment or a series of moments that, that, that clicked with you? Um, I think in reality, it was probably... Not until um, I became an independent financial advisor in 2002, because I then, the role I had as well, which was very much a, 
a pensions technical role. And I think it's probably worth saying that um, from starting off as an administrator in the early 90s, I soon felt that I really wanted to go more into the technical side. And that's really getting to grips with all the, the legislation that underpins pensions, which does sound incredibly boring, but it's not. And the one constant I would say throughout my working career is that pensions legislation has never stood still. And I think that's why I've lasted in it so long, because you've never got to a point where you can sit back and think, right, I know everything there is to know now, and this is going to get, start getting very boring, because change has been a constant, if I put it that way. And it's normally down to changes in governments and things like that, and also the state of the economy. But it was, um, yeah, so, I, so I'd very much ventured onto a technical path as, as the sort of 90s became the early noughties. And I think also the role I was doing at that time um, was involved a lot more client work, uh, where you were actually dealing face-to-face with clients and individual clients. And I sort of felt I, I really liked this as opposed to um, working on projects for very large organizations where you really hardly ever saw anybody at those organizations. So that really led me to want to pursue becoming an independent financial advisor. And I was able to do so from 2002. But the role that I had uh, involved me starting to deliver uh, sort of technical training sessions to the advisors. So that sort of standing up in front of uh, and it was largely male, to be fair, but a, a body of uh, advisors all sort of staring back at you while you were trying to explain the vagaries of pensions legislation as it was then and trying to turn it into words of one syllable. Um, that was where my sort of, I guess, amateur dramatics or just general performance uh, skills came to the fore for the first time. And if anything, that's only increased over uh, the last sort of 18 years. And um, it, it's interesting because you, you, when you talk about the, the pensions legis- legislation, you obviously have a passion for it as well. That you can you can see that. Uh, I appreciate people listening can't see it, but I can see it. It, it comes you know comes off your face. You're very passionate about it, but you also kind of you you kind of gave yourself an excuse. You're like, oh, it sounds very boring, and that kind of makes me think. Well, you obviously thought it was boring when you were younger, and now as you got older, it, it, it's changed, and maybe you've changed. And uh, just wondering again, was that something that ha- can happen? kind of quickly or over time or how did that how did that interest kind of come about it's a really really good question i i suppose you know initially when i, I sort of go back to the mid 80s it was an administration job um the fact that it was in pensions was was almost sort of like an aside really but i suppose i'd, I'd never even really got involved with pet you don't as a kid you know you sort of, it's it's something that's way out in the future do you know what i mean the, the nearest i got to it was um my grandmother asking me to go to the local post office for her weekly state pension and and you know in those days you went to a post office and the guy behind the counter counted it out for the pensioner and then that that was theirs for the week and and you know you're not looking at a great deal of money either. But um, that was probably the nearest I got to the concept of what a pension is. So there was a really steep learning curve um, from starting work. And I think the one 
really good thing, and 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 this is something I would really impress upon the listeners, is that um, I was very fortunate in that when I started at Scottish Widows, I was actually put onto uh, study leave and actually studying initially for insurance examinations. So every Monday afternoon, I'd go to a local college and I was enrolled for three separate papers. And then I took those the following April uh, and passed them. And when I then came out the other side of my degree, the new employer put me on actually a pensions um, study course, which I stuck with. And then ultimately, uh, through their support, because, you know, they basically paid for everything. And, and I got study leave there as well. Um, I, I got a qualification, professional qualification within four years. And, and I think if you can have that support behind you to actually get professional qualifications it really does stand you in good stead and it it certainly has for me and 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 it's it's one area where it, it you know an employer can offer you so much more than just giving you a job and, and paying you a wage at the end of every month and, and it's it's important as well as was for for anyone listening to realize that that opportunity to do something like that can very well happen straight away after you come out of university, but it could be a few years. It could be until yes. you find your own path. It and and it things develop. And actually, if you and you know, if anyone is listening who 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 goes on and, and looks at people's career progression on LinkedIn, for example, you'll often see they did a random degree unrelated to their job, and then they have kind of a professional not in every circumstance, but they have a professional qualification as they went along because they they were constantly trying to update their skills. I think this might be a good time to 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 focus a little bit now on kind of the work you do now, and just for okay. anyone who isn't who isn't entirely familiar with with what your work would involve, can you just give us give us a bit of a a, um, a summary of it or an introduction to it, if that's okay? Yes, absolutely. So um, I was an independent financial advisor from 2002 to 2015, and then I almost jumped over the fence, and I now work for a pensions provider. Uh, but the role that I have as a technical specialist and the types of pensions that um, I focus on are self-invested pensions. And if I can just throw a little bit of terminology at you, it's self-invested personal pensions or SIPs and also small self-administered schemes or SASs. Uh, so it's all the S's. <laughs> and um, the, the great thing for me is that a lot of my work <clears throat> excuse me, involves me delivering seminars, attending events, doing and certainly this year, doing webinars for financial advisors. So although my role now is not a regulated one, which basically means that I can't go and give financial advice to people like I was doing as an advisor, <clears throat> the, the experience of uh, being an advisor really helps me in my current job because I can sort of see so both sides of the fence. So when I'm putting, if I'm writing a blog or I'm putting together a technical briefing note or I'm doing a slide deck for a presentation, I'm always coming at it from the other side and saying, well, if I was sat in the audience, would this hold my attention and would I actually find this useful? So I'm very fortunate in, if you like, being on both sides of the fence throughout my career. It's really helping me in my current role and uh, trying to give the audience what they want. And again, you know, you could sort of relate that to amateur dramatics as well. I think knowing your audience is an absolute key. 
Absolutely, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is me just being a bit, a bit, uh, bit stupid and not kind of fully grasping the the conversation. But so with, with the independent consultants, what, mm. so can you explain <clears throat> the difference between the two? Because is yes. that, that again? Apologies if I'm just being a, a bit of idiotic here and just not picking that up. Oh, no, you're not. So, um, basically, they within financial services there are what I would call regulated advisors. And they can, I don't want to throw too much terminology at you, but um, financial advisor firms are there for consumers, you know, everyday people to, to go to, to say, right, this is my situation. Um, this is, you know, this is my assets. This is what I'm doing. Uh, and, and invariably, you know, it could be the husband and wife having this. We've got two kids. And, and it's sort of trying to build together, put together a plan of action for the future of a financial nature and pensions will inevitably be part of that overall picture but inevitably there'll be a, there'll be other savings and things as well and and inheritances from from deceased parents and, and all this sort of thing so a financial advisor um, takes a holistic approach to somebody's situation and I think the one thing I found kept my interest was everybody's different and although my focus was very much on pensions and retirement planning in particular um, you know no two people are the same and 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 one of the great things about being a financial advisor is that the regulators expect you to know your customer and that's great because I'm nosy so I just loved a real excuse to find out everything about that person because that all then ultimately fed through to the recommendations that I provided to them but now um, my role is working for a pensions provider so a company that provides pension products and in terms of offering those out we, we do uh, you know we let people come to us direct so uh, the, the, the fancy phrase is execution only, which, which sounds a bit macabre, but they're basically coming to us without or not via an advisor. But I would say that the bulk of our business comes to us via financial advisors. And so our um, aim is to get to know all the advisors really well, tell them all about our company, all about our products, why they should be using us and hopefully uh, getting lots of uh, new business in from them. And so it's very much a relationship driven business. And again, you know, I, I can bring a lot of, uh, of my career and the skills I've acquired to that, to that piece. But it's, um, it's great because uh, no two days are the same and I can be very creative in terms of what we do. So, I could honestly say now, I think I've probably got to a point in my life where I am combining a creative edge to a professional work-based environment. And can you give us an example of something maybe that you're working on at the moment or have worked on recently where you got to kind of have that creative outlet? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's really something that's come about because of the pandemic this year. Um, last year, we, we did a series of events for advisors where we went to microbreweries around the country. And the idea was that we would let the people, the brewers, effectively tell us all how they brew their beer and, and allow us to take a few samples of their products. And then I would give a sort of half an hour update on what's going on in pensions like a hot topics talk um, which 
gave the advisors some continuing professional development uh, points. Um, and then we would just basically have food afterwards and, and enjoy some more drink, uh, usually on the premises. So sampling their wares and just having a really good, uh, very informal chat with, with the advisors that were there. And we were going to do that again this year, but of course, the pandemic spoke otherwise. And so what we've actually done this year is we've gone virtual and we have run a series of uh, Zoom-based uh, events and they we, we call them What's Brewing in Pensions. And the idea is that they last an hour on a Friday afternoon and I give again a sort of 25 minute talk on what's going on in pensions. And the one thing I would say is I'm never, ever short of content. There's always plenty to talk about. And then when I've, when I've stopped talking, then the person who's chairing the meeting basically goes around the virtual room and everybody's invited to bring a drink with them and they can talk a bit about what they're drinking and why, share an anecdote of life in lockdown, even tell a joke. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's amazing the variation that we've had in that. And then it all wraps up an hour later and the people have got the rest of the night to themselves. And then the following week, we liaise with them and we send through what we call CPD learning objectives for their CPD records. And it gives my business development colleagues the chance to maintain that relationship and build that relationship. And what's CPD? continuing professional development and it's certainly within financial services and particularly for regulated individuals it is a mandatory requirement that they accrue so many hours a year and then record that with their professional body and so normally uh, and, and now remember this is my days as an advisor you'd have so many invites to so many different things during the year it was a piece of cake to build up the number of hours that you needed but this year it's been far more of a challenge so we're trying to rise to that challenge and give them the option to earn some cpd in you know from the comfort of their own home <laughs> it's, it's definitely not something that i would have initially associated when you're talking about the kind of uh, financial financial services sector so it's really interesting to kind of hear that kind of creative outlet we're, we're coming to the end of our for chat and i what i like to do towards the end is 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 uh I suppose give you a chance to kind of reflect and and offer any advice or guidance for anyone because the the people who are listening to this podcast are you know the majority of the people listening to this podcast are, are either uh, students who are struggling to kind of figure out what they're going to do or maybe they're recent graduates and they're struggling to to figure out what they're going to do or maybe they're neither and they're just struggling out what to do with their career next so kind of based on what you've learned what would be your kind of top three tips in terms of trying to figure your career out and and kind of developing well, I think the first thing is um, don't worry about getting it right first time. I think, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I, I, I say I wanted to draw, you know, as a young child. And that was very much my creative uh, heart leading my head. Um, but I suppose when I got to the point of doing A-levels, you know, I didn't automatically think, right, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer or something like that. Um, so don't be worried, don't be afraid of just aiming for something initially and see if it works out. And if it does, brilliant. But if it doesn't, there's lots of other things, there's loads of other opportunities out there. And, uh, you know, I think keep exploring and keep focusing. I think what I would say is, you know, when you found your place because 
you just it just works for you in whatever shape or form that is and uh, so hunt for that and and then when you've found it stick with it but like myself don't think that you've got to stay in one particular furrow for the rest of your life because invariably there will be opportunities to go off in lots of different directions and it's not a bad thing to do that and I would say now uh, having worked for lots of different types of organizations within the financial services industry I can honestly say that I'm, I'm in the probably the, the happiest job that I've ever been in and uh, you know it's, it's been a long journey to get there but I'm thoroughly glad that I have done and and any any work you do is an experience and it all counts even though you may be doing a job that's completely different to one you did before because there's so many now so many transferable skills that you can take with you from one job to the next That was James talking about his really interesting career, which started off with him wanting to pursue various different kind of, I suppose, creative outlets, mainly uh, in film, uh, to be admit, and then slowly moving into pensions. I really hope this episode will be an inspiration for anyone who is bursting with creative enthusiasm, but knows deep down their soul that they're not going to pursue it as a career for whatever reason. I think James's career was actually really helped by his creative outlet. It's kind of obvious talking to him he's got such a passion for it he's got such a love for it and clearly it's helped in really practical ways um such as kind of doing presenting and talking to audiences and people and everything and it was a really interesting story to listen to because the the path between being super creative for his job and being creative for his uh, passion projects sometimes those lines seem to get blurred and i think that um sounded like it was ended up being a good thing for james in the end i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you found it useful, please help the show by subscribing or by passing a link to either this episode or a different episode onto someone who you think might benefit from some of the advice in this show. But in the meantime, I'm Keanu Sullivan, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Graduate Compass. Remember, if there is a degree subject or specific industry you would like to be featured on any future episodes, then we would love to hear from you and know what you are trying to find out. Our email is info at graduatecompass.ie.